Welcome back to another You Said It podcast. Today is the first of a six-part series that we're doing on savage leadership. And I'm very excited to have an old friend uh, and one of what I consider one of the top leaders in our area, John McVeigh. I want to thank everybody for listening to last week's podcast with the girls from the Asian Pacific Islanders Club. It has now become the most listened podcast that we've ever done in the three years that we've had the podcast. Pretty powerful. I know it was also tough for people maybe to hear a few of the things. I give the girls a tremendous amount of credit. I'm excited that a lot of people have reached out to me and said, what can we do? How can we be better? Um, I'm excited that I'm going to be working with Andy Van Horn and Karna Meehan from the high school, and we're going to we're going to try to put some action in to support this club, as well as all the other clubs at the high school that are facing a lot of big issues right now. So again, uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we're going to kick it off with the the, lead, the Savage Leadership Series. So first of all, John, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. John, what we like to try to do is have our guests do the bio. It would be one thing if I just read off the bio of John. And, and again, folks, I am very lucky. When I first started here... And I was a young person at the time. John was in the seventh grade. So I've seen John grow from a little wiry seventh grader to uh, one of the top-notch leaders and people in our Merrimack Valley. So, John, how about a, how about a bio to all of our listeners? Who sure. is John McVeigh? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was born locally. I was born at Lawrence General Hospital and grew up in the area. Uh, with, uh, I lived most of my life in North Andover here uh, with my parents who were both worked in the North Andover school system. My dad was a teacher at the high school and a coach, obviously, and my mom was the director of special education at North Andover and had a great experience growing up. Went to, went to uh, Thompson and Kittred schools in the middle school and the high school and, and ran into so many important mentors. You know, when, I, when we're going to talk about leadership today, and I always think about how, many, how lucky I was and how many different leaders and mentors I ran into. And I'm looking across the table at one of them because like you said, I remember seventh grade and hearing about this thing called Team Co and not knowing what it was and you know, and, and, and thinking about how that impacted my life over the years or going to the Lawrence Boys Club and meeting mm-hmm. Steve Kelly and Billy Robertson and, and, and that in that environment. So I just, I've always felt incredibly lucky about the places that I grew up. Um, you know, I had a great experience at North Andover High School. Um, it was a, a place where I knew a lot of people. My, at one point, my dad was my homeroom teacher and my history teacher and my basketball coach uh, and had some good friends. But I would say in high school, as I think back on it, I, I was a pretty good student and, and, a, and a pretty pretty good athlete, but I wasn't always very confident in myself and didn't know, and I was trying to figure myself out, figure out where I was. Uh, and. And I felt like as time went on that, you know, I had a, a chance in, to, in college to play basketball at Merrimack College nearby and, and, uh, and had another one of the really important mentors in my life who was Bert Hamill, who, who was a huge part of my life and, uh, and a great experience there. And then, uh, you know, when I, when I left Merrimack, I spent a couple years down at Duke University getting my grad degree and thought I wanted to be an engineer at the time and got to spend some time watching great basketball down there and tried engineering and hated it. Uh, and, and got super lucky uh, to, uh, you know, we had one of those like, one of those things that just worked out well and had an opportunity to get into the classroom. And from the moment I got into the classroom, knew that, that education was really what I, what I wanted to be doing. And so I, I worked for a year at Andover High. And, and in that year, I met my wife, who still works at Andover High. Sure. Uh, and uh, had an offer from Brooks, who was losing their basketball coach, and, and offered me a job as a science teacher and a basketball coach, and, and took that. And now, 18 years later, have have worked in a bunch of different roles there. Um, I live there with my family and my wife, who I mentioned, Candace, who's a teacher at Andover High School. We have two kids, Jack and Kelly. Uh, Jack's 14, Kelly's 12. 
and uh, and and feel like I'm like the luckiest guy in the world. I, I have hit the life lottery. So I'm, you know, and, and when I think about that, I, I think it, that relates to leadership because one of the fundamental things I think about is gratitude. And I think about how lucky I am and how fortunate I've been and how many incredible leaders have been in my life that I've learned from and have set me up for success. Absolutely. And we're going to get into a lot of this because, uh, folks, that 18 years of Brooks, he has held many, many uh award many hats. I'm going to get into a lot of that. Uh, so John, when we started to think about doing this Le Savage Leadership Series, one of the things that I've realized during this year, or like no other of the pandemic year, is I think that leadership was a broad term, which I, I, I don't know if it was fully defined to people. Yeah, he's a leader, or that person's a leader. And is it title-based, or is it action-based? And one of my things, as I strongly believe, is this pandemic, the year like no other, has really shown us who leaders are and who leaders aren't. And, it, and the, when I say the ones that aren't, that it's more of just a title thing. I think people have had to make some sacrifices this year, have made, uh, made some tough decisions, and you know we talked offline on, on a couple of those things also. So when I think of leadership, when I think of John McVeigh, how would you describe your leadership style? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think... I'm a big believer that leadership is defined by behaviors. And I think it can be really easy to get caught up in the intangibles or qualities or sort of the words of leadership, which, which are important, but ultimately can, can work the opposite way if your words don't line up with your actions. And so I, I tend to think about, about behaviors when it comes to leadership. I think, you know, like the, the term servant leadership, I love, I, you know, I believe and hope that I'm a, a servant leader, but I think if to just say you're a servant leader really doesn't do it, what does that look like? And so, you know, maybe some of the, I think about relational leadership. And so for me, that's about, you know, knowing the people you're, that you're with, understanding their stories, understanding how, how they work, you know, what motivates them, what, what moves them, you know, sometimes it's, it's about understanding what makes it harder for someone to do their job. And, 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 and situational, you know, I'm, I, and this is, I think something that I've grown to understand. I think maybe when I was young, I was thinking like that, that leadership, it was sort of a static thing. I think leadership is actually very situational and, sure. the, and the best leaders have the ability to assess the situation in the moment and sort of pick from a few different tools that they can use to, to get through the problem. And if you use that same approach all the time, you're limiting yourself and probably limiting the people you work with because no one approach is ever going to solve every problem. True, true. John, when we start to think of our own leadership style, we have to really look back at what our leadership values are. When you think of John McVeigh's leadership values, what are some of those values? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll tell you the ones I strive for. I mean, I, I think one of the things about leaders, you have to acknowledge that you, you can't always be all of these things, right? But, but the things that, that, that matter to me and that I value in other people, you know, certainly honesty and integrity being one of the, the main ones, sort of being kind of doing what we say and saying what we do sort of thing and making sure those, those line up. Uh, I think empathy is a huge one. Uh, and, and understanding that, that generally everybody's got a story that if you hear, you're much more likely to understand the why behind their behaviors, you know, and I think the better we do at listening and understanding that, the more likely we are to be able to move forward. I think vision and, and sort of having a vision and being excited by a vision is a huge part of being a leader and, and, and being, knowing that as a leader, your job is to sort of set that vision and celebrate it and, and share it with everybody that you can. Um, yeah, I think curiosity is a big one that, that maybe more than when I was younger that I've, that I've tapped into and sort of the starting from, from a place of wondering as opposed to being certain of where you are. Uh, 
you know, and then authenticity. And I think that's a, a huge one because there's so much information about leadership and it's great. And I love reading leadership books and listening to leaders, but I think it, it can be tempting. There's a, there's a parallel here with basketball coaching and there's so much information in basketball coaching right now that you can read everything, but sure. there's a danger of reading, like, too much. reading too much and like paralyzing yourself or having, or trying to be everything and everyone and not accomplishing any of it. And I think there's a danger maybe in, in folks who are reading and trying to emulate someone who's not who doesn't have those same values, who isn't wired the same way and trying to lead that way as opposed to, to starting with what you said, which is what are your values? How can I be authentic to me, right? Like, and because I think that authenticity, people sniff that out. And, and, and the longer you're working, the, the more that happens. There's more, you know, every time you're involved in a situation, the people you're with are, whether they know it or not, are sort of doing the math. You know, how does this line up? Is this, you know, does this match what, what I'm expecting of this leader? Does this match what we say we're doing? You know, how do their actions reinforce that or or, uh, or maybe cut it, you know, yeah. like and, and, and make it maybe seem less valuable. So I think that authenticity piece is huge, too. And and, and there's a real requirement for leaders to, to kind of check themselves on that and to not try to be somebody or something that they're not. Because I think ultimately, if you're trying to impress somebody else or trying to be somebody else, you might win that meeting or you might win that moment. But in the long run, you're, you're probably setting yourself up for failure. For sure. You bring up a word that I use a lot. As a matter of fact, I have a t-shirt that I walk around town that says, be curious. <laughs> yeah. um, how does being curious or curiosity in general, how does that lend to any kind of leadership development? I, I'm, I'm a huge, this is like, and again, I'm sure this happens over time. I don't know that I thought about it a lot when I was young, but sort of the, the idea of curiosity over certainty. You know, I think I, I, I have found that when I enter situations and ask questions, I learn a lot more and I enter the, my, whatever my role is going to be as a leader is, is further down the road that we need to get by asking those questions. I think the flip side is when you come in certain about something and when you have preconceived notions, you're just as likely to kind of have somebody move the other way to start. And then you spend so much time trying to, you know, to either rebuild that bridge or whatever else. And I think so many people just need to be heard. Right? I don't know that, that, that people always need to agree with the final result, but sure. I know if they, haven't, if they don't feel listened to, if they don't feel like they've had a chance to weigh in and share their perspective, it's really hard to get buy-in. You know? And on the flip side, it's hard to get them to, to, to understand your why if you're not asking questions. If you come in sort of with your blunt, with your blunt approach and say, this is what we're doing, like get on board, you know, you're going to be fighting resistance the whole way. So I think... That idea of being curious and, and asking people to be curious in return. I think that's that's sure. part of what I try to do as a leader too is, is say, hey, like before you come in and, and tell me, I, I'd like you to be curious, right? Because if we can get that sort of culturally in an organization where people sit down and, and think right, you know, like more like, can you help me understand? Or what if we did this? And just and, and investigate with an open-mindedness and, and a willingness to consider other perspectives, we're way more likely to get to where we're, where we're trying to get with that. I love that answer. John, obviously we've talked a few times about known you since the seventh grade. And as someone who's a human, human behavior specialist, I love observing people. I, I observed a young John McVeigh that, um, you know, keeping with the theme of curious, I, I saw you kind of watch leaders. And whether it be your own dad who was a leader in this town, you mentioned people like Bert Hamill. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of... What were some of the mentors that you had, you know, in terms of leadership, but also maybe people that had different leadership um, models that maybe you took a little bit of 
piece from each person to develop your own leadership model. For sure. I mean, I think Coach Hamill's a great place to start because, you know, we had an incredible bond from the time I was, you know, I, and I knew him when I was really young. You know, sure. he, he started at Merrimack when, when I was born. My dad stopped coaching at Merrimack and Bert took his assistant coaching job. And, and that's, that's sort of how long I've been connected to him. You know, we were very different personalities in terms of, I think, how, how people would describe us. Uh, you know, he was so I mean, so fiery and so extroverted, and I've become more like that. But you know, especially if you think about me in high school, mm. I was a, I was the guy who stayed kind of I stayed back and watched, and more than step up and and be a vocal guy. And and Bert helped me with that, like with with my confidence, and you know, and and watching him and seeing his passion and, and seeing how that worked, that was that was a huge part of it. You know, you were a huge part of that. You were you know, as someone who came into this town and didn't know anyone and. and you know, and I don't know, I'd be lying, I think, if I if I said in seventh grade I was connecting all these dots, but I know as time goes on, you can't help but sort of observe that. And and you were someone who, when I, when I was a young kid, was reaching out to everybody, and especially the kids who weren't connecting with adults. Correct. Right? And, and that was a big deal, and I know it, it, I, I know it mattered. I wasn't necessarily one of those kids, right? And, and, I, and I think I knew that. And you connected with me still. It wasn't like you were saying no to the kids who were, but... But I knew the kids that were, you know, in different groups, and that you were finding ways to, to get to, and that's that has been had stayed on my mind. I know like, whether I'm whether I'm thinking of you or not. I know at our school, one of my one of the, the questions that I'm always asked is who's un, like who isn't connected right now? Because right. I think connection is such a huge part of a community, and and in every community there are people who, for one reason or another, either something that's happened to them or uh, or something that that they've. You know, sometimes it's a combination of things, their own choices, whatever, that, that aren't connected. And so I think we have an obligation to do everything we can to, to sort of build the bridge more than halfway. You were someone who did that. I learned a lot from that. You know, I think about, I mentioned the Boys Club guys, you know, sure. the ultimate servant leaders in my mind. You know, and I remember and I remember being at the Boys Club and watching them, whether they were working with kids on their homework or in the gym. Or, you know, I remember Steve Kelly serving food, you know, it would be 95 degrees and he's in his sweatshirt and... He's just, you know, like, like those guys, they, they're, they're, they're true service. You know, I think service, servant leadership sometimes is about words. To me, that's when, when I think about the action, you know. Uh, and then my, my parents were, were huge in that, I, both of them. You know, and, and my dad, they're very different from each other. My dad gets, has gotten a lot more attention. He was the coach and a teacher sure. and, a, and a bigger personality. But I think but, people forget your mother was the director of special yeah, ed. Yeah, my mom's, you know, we, we joke. There was, a, there was a, a paper I wrote in the ninth grade where I... I, I put something like my dad is seemingly the boss of the house, but the true boss of the house is my mom, and sure. and and I think I benefited from both of them and in their approaches and their you know in their approaches with me. I think they balanced each other out well. I think they've always served as an example to me in lots of ways. You know, they're they're uh, you know obviously as parents, but also just their example and and the way that they they worked with other. You know, I, I get to I got to see them work with me and my sister, but also with others. That was a huge deal. I, I, I remember my eyes being opened. As I got older, when I noticed that the players would come over and talk to my dad, you know, it'd be the summer and something would happen or they wanted to catch up and they'd, mm-hmm. they'd have a conversation. And I remember as I got older being like, oh, this is what coaching is. It's not just, you know, when, when you're little, it's just like you show up in November and you coach the team and you leave. And now I'm seeing relationships. Yeah, these, these relationships that are happening. And then as I got older, I, I, I saw it more and more. And then there were people that I, you know, so like I think of my dad and Eric Domac, right, who were, who were not necessarily going to be peas in a pod from the outside, but had this incredible relationship. And Eric and I were really close. And we probably, I don't know that I would have predicted that, you know, based on our, like, on, on our interests and everything else, but, but we had a, a real connection. But I'd watch my dad and, 
and Doma and, and, and be like, all right, I can, I started to see sort of the value in what you could do. And, and, and certainly when I got to college and watching Bert, same kind of thing. He was connecting with, with all sorts of people and, yeah. and, you know, and, and understanding that like as a leader, and maybe this is one, like you didn't, you didn't have to treat everyone the same, but you had to connect with them. You had to treat them fairly and you had to make sure that you, you know, that, that you were on the same page. And so, you know, I think about like our, my basketball team at Merrimack and, and Bert would treat Sean Brown one way and he had a different relationship with me and a different relationship with Reggie Carter and a different relationship with Jeff Karen, but it all worked because we, everyone looked and knew we were getting his best. It was right. just that he was really good at knowing what each person needed. Absolutely great example. There's a, there's a coach uh, that both of you, both of us admire a lot. Uh, I've found over the pandemic, he has gotten into more leadership um, than I remember him being outspoken about leadership, but I think he's a true leader. That's Bob Walsh, yeah. <laughs> uh, who's presently uh, working at Providence College, but he's, he's been everywhere, and I, 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 I kind of hang on a lot of his leadership words. I, I find him a truth teller. I find him someone that just really makes me think, makes me curious. So he has a quote that I just read today before you I read, came. I read it. Okay, so you might be prepared for this. What does this quote from Bob Walsh mean to you? The most consistently powerful approach you can take as a leader is to model the behavior. And you started to touch on that. Yeah, it, 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 I laughed because I read it right before I came here. You know, he, he, I, I, every time he posts, I read it. You know, and I've been lucky enough to get to know him a little bit. He's recruited a couple of our guys over the years. We've had a player go play for him up in Maine. Sure. Uh, and uh, and I am, he's one of those people that when I read his stuff, I just find myself nodding and, and you know, and, and learning. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've texted him or written him a quick note just saying thanks like that. You know, we've yeah. got things in our locker room. You know, what, what I read today immediately resonated with me. I, I keep a, a coaching card in my pocket with it has a lot of X's and O's on one side. Going, I do one for each game and kind of my thoughts and what I want to do. But the other side is more general thoughts. And one of the one of the big lines that I have is calm is contagious, right? And it goes along with what he was talking about today, which is sort of the, the that if coaches are expecting a behavior out of their team, it's, it's uh, pretty foolish to think they're going to get it if they aren't doing it themselves, right? right. And so the... I think as a younger coach, I was someone who, who wasn't all that calm, and whether it was with referees or with our play, you know, and I was, I was tight and nervous, and, and I think our teams played like that. And so by sort of reminding myself, calm is contagious, right? If, my guys, if I want my guys to be poised, I better be pretty poised, right? If they see me acting like a maniac, if I don't want my players to focus on the refs, how can I be focused on the refs? You know, and that's that, that the whole article, you know, is that the power of your example is going to, particularly with kids, I think, who are always watching and are always kind of evaluating and trying to figure out, like, you know, you're asking me to do something that requires some sacrifice and it's hard and it's this, and, and if I see you doing it, I'm probably a little more likely to, to do it myself. And, right. if, and if you're not, I'm gonna have some questions. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, I'm sure you probably bought his recent book that I, uh, it's a great book, it's a quick read, but I, I mean, I got profound things from it. Let me ask you, what is what would you say is the the mental side of leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think the the mental side is probably the, the thing that you when you're young you overlook the most, you know. And I, and by that I mean that it, that you really need to be thoughtful. And I, the the analogy I use is sort of like my basketball practices, right? Like basketball practice is really important, but the most important thing I do as a coach is the the, the practice planning, right? That the time I spend ahead of time thinking about what do we need. Putting, uh, getting everything organized. So I'm going to use things, you know, and use that time really well with people, and be reflective about that that fundamental coaching question, which is like we got a lot to cover. 
what are we going to focus on today and, and what are we going to accomplish? And I think sometimes leaders can get so busy that they don't do that. They're not, right. they're not stopping. They're not kind of taking a deep breath. They're not assessing and, and assessing themselves as well as other people and, and, and maybe not reflecting too, because that's the other side of it, right? Like Absolutely. after you do something, are you going to take the time and think? And, and that's not something I did a lot of. I'm trying to be, that's, it's one of my real intentions right now is to, after something happens, you know, I, I write it out or think it out or, because I think it, it's it's that's how you get better and that's how you learn and, and it's what we are hoping everyone's doing but i think sometimes leaders can get into a habit of just going from like one problem to the next problem to the next problem without thinking like, like how is this going is it has this been effective you know yeah. like should i you know is, what can i learn from this what can i change from this and 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 then maybe secondly on the mental side that the the need to like you have to be totally engaged and yet and yet just disconnected enough to not take things personally and to not get too results oriented in the sense of like things, sometimes things go wrong and, and to not take that all on yourself. You know, I think that, that there's, it's really, really important to, to have that mental balance and, and some stability to, to ride out what can be really tough waves. Because if not, if you're, if you're sort of riding that roller coaster, it can be hard to be ready for the next one when, when you're down. So I think there's a, a huge mental side to that. Absolutely, John. I've seen you evolve at Brooks School, and I, I you know, I it, it's funny. Um, I remember when you were working for me during the summer, and I actually think your father was getting terrified that your life goal was to work my summer <laughs> basketball league. And uh, I do apologize to Mike and Jackie. I, I, I thought I had much more expectations of you on that, but I knew how much you loved the basketball and working here in the youth center and our culture. When I saw you wanting to be an engineer, totally fully supported your interest in that. It's like with Steve Bedreau, I also see, saw something different. I saw, I'll be honest with you, I saw a teacher and a coach. And it is interesting how sometimes things come full circle. You have been become more of a teacher uh, and a coach. You're also a big-time administrator. You have won, and I think this is not uncommon in prep schools, you've won a lot of hats over the years. I think you said 18 years at Brooks. What what have been some of the roles? I know I've joked to you at one point that, Jesus, you're that you're involved with uh, financial aid, admissions, or whatever. You better be able to get these basketball players in. So, what are some of the hats you've worn yeah, in a, a leadership role? It's a good question. I joke, you know, I, I even have I, I had to recently write my leadership philosophy for um, for some professional stuff I'm doing, and I and I open it with this scene where I look at my dad. We were at a restaurant, and I told him that I wanted to quit engineering and and be a teacher and a coach and he just dropped his fork and stared at me you know mm -hmm. and and it wasn't because of anything other than a great parent parental instinct which is like i believe you can do anything and you can be more than me in, in a good right. way but right. but the truth is it's how i'm wired you know i think that that this kind of work is the, is so fulfilling and i've never ever regretted it and what's been great about brooks and, and to your point is that i've been able to explore lots of areas of the school and yet stay at a school that i that i love and so, you know, you're right, people wear lots of hats. It's a little, my path has been a little different because it's been in a bunch of different areas. And so the, I guess the whole thing, I started as a full-time science teacher. Uh, and so I taught kind of a full section, several sections of science, four sections and uh, coached two seasons and, and helped in the dorm. Uh, our head of school asked me to be involved in our college office. So I eventually became the director of the college office. And, and I loved the college office because it was sort of a different way of working with kids than I ever had. But a lot of it was coaching. A lot of it was sort of helping them understand the process and understanding themselves and, and maybe getting out of thinking like, like uh, thinking that, that the name of the school was what mattered most and getting more to sort of what, the, what that experience would be like and how that, that fit them. Um, 
did that for five years and then had an opportunity. The basketball thing was, was starting to go pretty well. And in a conversation with our head of school, who's been, you know, and I should have mentioned him, and we'll talk about him at some sure. point, I think, we're on mentors. But John Packard, our head, has been an incredible mentor to me. Uh, and, and as we talked, he's always sort of said, what else are you interested in? You know, and he's somebody who had a very similar path. He did a bunch of different jobs, and, and he did the job I'm in right now, right before he became the head of the school. And and so he said, you know, what else are you interested in? And we were talking, and I was talking about how much I liked finding kids that I thought were good fits for Brooks. And he said, well, you should try admissions and financial aid. And so I went to that office for five or six years and, and did that, and then had the opportunity to, to this kind of this latest role, which, which started as the dean of faculty role and is now sort of an associate head of school title. Uh, and the dean of faculty, it's, it's a completely different role. Um, it's the first adult-centered job I've had. Everything else was pretty much centered around students. This is much more kind of around uh, who we hire, how do we work with people, how do you help people who need professional development, how do you work with people when it's not going well, how do you put them in position, you know, it's, it's, it's a very people-centered job, uh, and it's a service job for sure, and, you know, the, it's been great, you know, so I've sort of, that's been my path along that, I've taught every, I've taught along the way, and I've taught every science class we have, I actually taught for a little while in our math department, I'm actually currently teaching a course in public speaking that I've been doing for a couple of years. I love public speaking. It's something that I'm that I it's sort of just a, a hobby and a passion that I like, and I do a lot of speaking at Brooks, and so I love working with kids on that. And what I, one of the things I like best is that it finishes with this capstone speech. That so it's a senior class, and they kind of give a speech to the Brooks community called like, around the theme like what I believe, you know, and, and they can really write it about anything they want. And so I, I've loved that. Uh, I've worked in the dorm the whole time. You know, we live in in the dorm, and so that's been a big part of what I do advise students the whole way and, and obviously the the basketball thing has been uh, you know we have been the head coach there all 18 years so definitely a wide range of things that, that I've been able to do and, and it's I'm not someone who can do the same thing over and over yeah. I, I know that about myself and so I'm incredibly grateful to Brooks for different opportunities that's allowed me enough movement to feel things are new and different and I'm learning and I'm trying new things and yet to be able to stay at, at the school that I love. And, and you're an extremely humble person, but it, it's clear to me, and it's always been clear to me, you know, from Headmaster Packet and other, as other people, what they've seen in you. And you've had an opportunity um, to obviously wear a number of different hats, and you're one of the main players there. And, you know, obviously this last year, a year like no other, Brooks took on something that I, I watched from afar with some amazement. So... Uh, as you know, we pulled some things off last year, being one of the only you know groups in the state that actually ran successful summer programs during the pandemic, and we've been able to stay open every day since June. Uh, but I've watched this whole bubble, what I, what I guess I'll call a bubble aspect that Brooks has kind of done, to basically have as, as somewhat of a normal school year, and again, it wasn't normal, uh, but you know, you guys put this in place. Talk a little bit about the leadership of you know, tackling that from from a theoretical standpoint at first to actually putting it in place so when the kids came back in the fall that they had somewhat of a Brooks school year. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's such an interesting, I think at the end of all this, it's such an interesting case study around leadership, around human behavior, around psychology, and it'll be fascinating. I think, well, I think people will be talking about what happened over this time for a long time. Without a doubt. Uh, you know, I think you see that you know, unlike almost everything else, schools tend to be pretty similar in their approaches in general, right? Like things are a little bit different from school to school, but generally speaking, things look similar. This has been completely the opposite. Every school seems to have taken its own approach, right? And I think that's a function of the fact that the first couple decisions you make put you in a direction that then like dictate the next couple decisions. And for us, 
the, the, maybe at the, at the core of what we were trying to decide was we had three groups of people. We had uh, our boarding population that, right, that was counting on being able to come to school, but to come to school meant they had to live on our campus. Right. We had our day students who were local, right, who had a different set of constraints. They wanted to be able to come to school, but they also needed to be able to leave school and go home. And, and, and I think a lot of wanted to do kind of their own thing in the ways they always had. We had a third group of students who weren't allowed to come, you know, and those are mostly international kids. A couple who were health related who literally couldn't come to campus sure. and so the the problem was how do you serve all three of those populations and do it safely and do it in a way that adults are willing to work at because I think that's the the, the, the final piece of this for us is that at a, at a 24 7 uh, boarding school adults have to be involved 24 7 there is no you know so you can't have a bubble for the students but something less for the kids and right. And so, you know, John Packard was the one really who, who led the way through that. And, and by the ultimate decision he made, and, and he, he would be the first to say, like, we, there was no option that served everyone perfectly well. You know, what I liked is that we didn't let that stop us from trying to serve as many people well as we could. And I think that's been something that has happened in some places where, it's, where you sort of figure out what you can't do and you get driven, you get you get driven by what you can't do as opposed to what's what what could we do right now what are what's our opportunity and for us john's kind of fundamental decision was where we are a boarding school <laughs> we are that's that's what we are we're a, we're a boarding school 70 something percent of the students live on campus and so we're going to stay true to that identity and we're going to try to use our identity as a boarding school as an as an asset in this as an advantage right because while while there's lots of things you can identify that that make it hard right now one op opportunity we have is the ability to bring kids in and keep them here and maybe not have to interact with the outside world and so and that's what really got us down that path and and so the second thing was okay that's fine for some number of people but it doesn't work for for a couple of the populations we talked about one the group that can't come here and second the group that that may not want to and so then it was like okay we need to have another option well we need to have an option for the kids who can't because they don't have any other choice and, and we don't want to abandon them right now. And so right. the, that became sort of the, our, we need to offer something online, right? That some way for them to access their experience here. And it's not going to be the same, but particularly around the educational piece, we need to be able to offer them something. And so then for the third group, it was sort of like, we can give them a choice. We probably can't do the commuting thing, and especially, you know, it, when I think back to last spring and summer, the idea of, of people Kind of coming in going out coming in going out felt like the weak link sure. in what we were going to do and so the the idea was well let's tell those folks they can either come here and be in the bubble or they can go online you know and so to do that now you now you have like that, that that's all great that's the theory and now it's sort of the logistics of that and so one of the things that we perhaps underestimated was a lot of kids were going to take us up on that we didn't know you know when we when we sort of came up with that idea who's going to come you know, like it was hard to tell. People were saying, "I think I'd want to or not," but but when when the rubber meets the road and we make you decide, what are you going to do? Well, in our case, a lot of the day students wanted to be there, and I think it was such a great like to me. It's such a good problem. It means that people sure. people want to be at your school. The challenge was that I think the first like two hundred and ninety five kids said they wanted to come, and we usually have about two hundred and forty two hundred and forty five kids on campus, and so now it was this logistical challenge of okay we've made this promise, how do we make sure everyone can be here? Right. While at the same time recognizing that it's a tough time to be crowded. You know, like, sure. like everybody's trying to, to de-densify. And so it meant we had to, 
invent some new dorms and come up with some new spaces and, and kind of explore all our different dorms to see, you know, I'll give you an example. I have a, there's a, a room, my house attaches to a dorm. There's a room in between the two and, it, and it's really, it's really our part of our house, but it became a double. Like sure. It was enough space. And so there were sort of, you know, a couple people that had to do things like that. It helped that John Packard, who was the head of the school, took in eight kids into the head, the head of school's house, wow. right? And so, uh, like when I said about action, and like it, it, it was a, it was a signal to everybody that I'm in this with you, right? Sure. And, and I assign, or I'm involved in the assigning of dorm parents, and he was like, I don't need a team. I will be on duty every night. I'll work with these kids. And so it's hard to push back too much, I think, about about kind of how hard you're working if the head of the school is, is willing to, to do that. Um, the, the final piece of this for us that I think was really hard logistically was that this did play out differently for adults than it did for kids. Mm-hmm. You know, and we've seen that in so many school systems around teachers' comfort and going into these spaces. Sure. And and so our approach with adults was, was to, t- to say, we have to serve our kids, right? That's the mission of the school is to serve our kids. We also don't want to put you in situations you're uncomfortable with. And so we, we sort of presented the plan and then opened the conversation to say, anyone who's not comfortable with this, let's talk. Let's right. figure out what that means. For some people, there were health conditions. Well, for a health condition, we're gonna, you know, we're not going to put somebody who's got a health condition sure. in this situation. And so we let them teach remotely and we took some of their responsibilities off. Other people it was more about discomfort or nervousness, and we had those conversations. But it wasn't; it was really hard. You couldn't come up with a blanket policy for everybody, no. and so we relied on our our faculty. And and the reason it's worked is the adults who are there. And, and I'll use not just faculty, like everybody, the you know from our, our from the people who work on our facilities crew, right? Who who were relentless about preparing spaces and cleaning sure. and getting everything everything ready, right? To all you know across the board, our, certainly our school teachers, everybody sort of had to, to, to adjust and, and do a little bit more you know on the school side John Packard's big thing was you know I, I want to I want to keep people whole we're not this is not a time where we want to start reducing salaries it's not a time where we want to you know any in any place we can we don't want to be laying people off or you know and so the message we're going to send is if we all do a little more we can at least still keep trying to do what we've always done and so I guess all of that said it's worked in the sense that we've had, I think kids have had a had an in-person experience, right? Yeah. And so, if you're measuring it against what it usually is, you're in, like, that's going to it's going to fall short of that. Right. A huge part of this, though, is what are you measuring against, right? To me, it's what are you measuring against if they didn't have it, right? And so, if all these kids were home and isolated, like I think I think we'd be in a worse place. Sure. Sorry. We we use the word the obstacle is the way, and yeah. you obviously had an obstacle, and you figured a way to do it. How about your leadership during this? And again, you're pretty humble. I know you were a major player with, with Headmaster Packard and others to pull this off. But what did you learn about your own leadership during this pandemic? It's, it's a good question. Yeah, it's a, number one, I think, to just to, re, to emphasize your point, there are so many people and so many leaders over there. You know, I think John, certainly in his role as head, you know, has, has been at the point of that. But, but so many people, and, and I hope... You know, if we're doing leadership the way I hope, we're, lots of people are involved and, and we're distributing that. For, for me, I'm someone who likes people to feel good. I, I, I like resolution, and I think everyone does that, but that's always been, you know, I, 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 how people are feeling matters a lot to me. That's been, that was a challenge because I had to recognize some of this. No, like there, there were things that people were feeling bad about that had nothing to do with Brooks and everything to do with we're in the middle of a pandemic right. and there's isolation and there's, there's some really tough you know, you know, we have a teacher who, a first-year teacher who wasn't able to come to school this year because of health concerns, you know, so she's teaching, but she's never actually been on campus, you know, right. and so we've got these people who are, who are dealing with lots of stuff, and so for me, some of it was, 
was being able to to work with people and recognize that like that sometimes the best we can do is the best we can do and, and to not feel bad that it was that it's not perfect uh you know some of it as a leader was to there's a um you know i love the obstacle is the way as as a metaphor is to recognize that not everyone is going to be able to be wired like that at all times and that you can't expect that for everybody but you can sort of organizationally promote it and to try to celebrate the people who are doing that and work with the people who are having a hard time and and who are perhaps not in a headspace mentally physically emotionally to be able to do that and to and to not let that get you down you know I mean, you guys have done an amazing job, and, I, and I'm only a small fry on this, but as you know, we have had a almost 50-year history with Brooks School in terms of having Sunday night skating, and I knew we were not going to be able to do that this year because you were basically turning Brooks into a bubble, but to talk a little bit and dealing with Bobby, uh, who I love and has been a great friend of the youth center with this, it wasn't just a no, it was an empathy, like I know this is tough for you because that we raise money out of that. That's a big thing for us. And there was also some hope. Like she originally said to me, nope, you're not going to be able to do anything. But when the kids go home, there's a possibility. So there was kind of like an open door. And the reality was it didn't make sense. And we and we canceled the year. And hopefully we'll, we'll be back next year if we're in a better place. But one of the things is, and, and Bobby's another um, leader at Brooks and just the way she dealt with be honest with you I was the last thing you and Headmaster Packard should have been worried about but there was that feeling of empathy and I thought that was a real leadership thing with her by just saying you know Rick we apologize but this is what we're doing and it was nothing like I just sat there and said that's what you got to do and you should do it um, you guys have done as I said an amazing job and it is a success because I know we're only in April and I know you had a time where the kids went home and then they're all back on campus now. But I've heard from some kids. I've heard about how to, because as you know, I'm extremely concerned about the social emotional effect of kids. I'm, the, I'm concerned about the social emotional effects of everybody. But, but as a kid-centric person, my concern is the, the effects from this are going to go and going to be measured for five years from now, maybe even longer. And we need to do that. And I actually have talked to the kids and they have said, uh, some of the Brooks kids I've talked about, a couple of day students, but a couple of on campus. And the reality, their attitude is you made the best of a really bad situation. And I think kudos to everybody over Brooks. I, I wish it continued success in the bubble this year. And I'm hoping with vaccinations and stuff, you guys will have, I don't know we're going to be totally back next year, but I think we're going to get we're gonna closer. Get close. We're going to get close for sure. I mean, we have, we have a group of students today going over to get vaccinated. Right. Like our 17 and 18 year olds are doing that. Our yeah. adults are in that process. You know, I think... What I'd say, I like what you're what you're saying because I think the empathy piece is so important. Not everyone has been thrilled. Like, I, like it's been successful in the sense, like I said, that a bunch of people have had good experiences. We also know that it's been hard. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah. you know, we know our day students were frustrated, right? And sure. I think we we had to make some decisions that we knew were like there there was no decision where everyone was going to be happy, right? And so you try to make the best. And, and one of those, when we thought about connection was at least the day students are someplace where they're with people, you know, right. like we had some people that we had some kids that were really far away and weren't close. And so, you know, and the day students were, some of them were frustrated and we had some frustrated parents, but I think we tried to listen. We tried to do better. You know, our, our kids who were online early on, you know, our teachers had to learn a whole new way of teaching. And, and right. so anyone who was surprised that it wasn't flawless, like, you know, you haven't been in a classroom, you're always, exactly messing up and so what i liked about our teachers approach is they listened i liked our students were vocal and active and we had a group of students that were online who met with teachers and said this is what we're experiencing and this is what needs to go better and i was glad that our adults 
you know, didn't take the approach of like, who are you to tell us? Instead, they listened and they connected and there were kind of frequent meetings to, to try to check in. And we had teachers sharing with other teachers, this is what will work. And, and kind of like, why did do this? Check in with people, do, you know, and I think it's gotten better. It doesn't mean it's been, it, it has not been uh, yeah. without bumps and bruises and, and really tough moments along the way. But I, I think someone would have a hard time arguing that people didn't care and that they didn't try. And I think ultimately that's that if that's where this lands, we'll, we'll feel pretty good about the, the effort. And I, I certainly know I am, I am so proud of the people who work at Brooks. And so, you know, because they, we, we asked them to not go out, you know, it wasn't just like the kids that were in a bubble, you know, our adults, you know, couldn't have, you know, they, they could, their friends couldn't have kids come over. They couldn't go into the different spaces. We really were asking them not to go out into into kind of high risk areas and not to go into restaurants and not to, you know, as part of this, because once the kids got in and were clean, actually the real danger was that some adult was going to get it yeah. and bring it back in. They, the kids were, weren't allowed to leave campus. And so it put a lot of strain on everybody, but, but I think that empathy piece was there. I hope. Yeah. Major kudos to everybody over at Brooks. Job well done. And we're not out of it yet, but you guys are plugging along. Let me switch gears a little bit. John is uh, an extremely successful head basketball coach at Brooks. And uh, when I saw John taking the job, uh, with all fairness, it was not a top-notch basketball job. Uh, I remember going to watch them on Saturday afternoons with maybe three people in the stands, and uh, the product wasn't that great. John, you have built um, quite a program over there. Um, and I, the question I have in terms of leadership is, what has John, the coach, been to help John, the administrator, in terms of leadership, and vice versa. What is that that administrator, John? How has he helped John, the coach, become better? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the the fundamental thing I believe in teams. I have always believed in teams. I believed in the power of the group and to and and how that works. And so, you know, you're talking about we were not very good when we started. The the benefit I had when I, and I got hired very young and very inexperienced. You know, and I joke with current coaches now when I. You know, the, the prep school basketball thing has, has exploded and now, you know, everybody who gets a job seems like they've already been a college coach. And I had done, I'd, I'd been, I'd coached for one year at the freshman level for my dad. That was my official coaching experience. Now, I'd done a lot of other things. I'd worked here with you and sure. I'd coached camps and obviously I'd played. But in terms of true coaching, that was really all I had. And I, I don't think I'd ever get the job now. The benefit of that was the expectations were so low and there was no, no one cared, you know. Right. And so... It was an incredible lab for me to try things that that I thought might work without the, you know, I think it's harder sometimes to take over a program that, you know, that that is really successful and functioning because expectations are high and, and, you know, and in my case, I I just went in, I met some kids and, and we had a great first year and, and kind of built it from there. And if, when people ask me about that, the only thing that I'll say that, that I think I, played a significant role in that more than the kid and the kids deserve all the success but I think I found kids who wanted to be there and loved basketball and I think on the administrative side that that's still the key right that, that it's about people that you find the the, the people who are going to bring the core values that you need to your organization and that are going to work in the ways that you expect them to right and and then to have to be able to kind of let them do their thing and that's hard. I, I struggle with that as a as a young coach. I wanted to manage everything. You know, you and I talked about this a little bit uh, the other night. You know, where when you're younger, you want to control every possession. You want to manage everything and tell everyone what to do. And I, as a coach, I've come far far away from that. And and I, so I think I entered administration maybe further down that road because I'd had the opportunity to try some things leadership wise. You know, and to and to 
to get a feel for kind of how people work together. And so administratively, it's trying to be the same thing. It's, it's, it's to identify, I mean, I have a big role in hiring. And so it's, it's trying to think, you know, like, you know, who do you want on the bus, right? That's a, that's a, right. a classic way of thinking. And how do you, how do you build a, a group of adults at a school who, you know, who bring lots of different perspective and lived experience and, and identities and, and so that you're not, so no kids walking into the same adult every time, right? No kids ever only seeing adults who look like themselves and no kids never seeing an adult who looks like themselves. And how do you, how do you get that kind of group to work together and, and give them enough autonomy to, to do the job the way they want it and yet enough consistency that, that the experienced kids are having. And so I think that the coach in me has, it's always helped, right? It's not, you know, when I, when I think of the tough conversations I have, there's always a parallel to the coaching conversation. Playing time is one that's on my mind a lot. You know, like I, as an administrator, I'm in a lot of conversations about salary and compensation and responsibilities at the school and who's in what house and all these different things. And, And I've had a lot of experience over the years talking to kids who all want to play more or all want to score more. And, and I've learned to not, I think that when I was young, I used to, that maybe that bothered me. And instead I came to see that as a blessing. Like, wow, how great that we have people on my team that want, that want to play more. Right? Right. And how terrible would it be if they were sitting on the bench being like, thank God I'm not in the game right now. I try to do that with things like compensation, with roles, with housing. Like, it's great. They're engaged. They care. Right. The, the, I, my thing, the worst thing you can see in an organization is apathy. That's mm-hmm. when, when, when someone doesn't care at all. So even if they're upset at me or if they don't agree, try to remind myself that it's coming from a place where they're trying to like they they want to do something they care and so i think that that has been a big part of the of kind of what's translated i love that let's talk a little bit about um your family um obviously and i'm i'm privileged to know both your parents real well for a long period of time but a quick question how has your family grounded you as a leader I mean, my, I, I'm I'm the luckiest guy in the world when it comes to my family, you know, and that the I, my family and, and I'll start with my parents, right? Sort of unconditional love has always been a, a thing, and so no matter how I'm feeling or what I'm doing, they've always been there to listen. They've always been there to to support. You know, my neither of my parents are someone who necessarily agree with you, uh, like to just agree with me, and, right. I, and I and I needed that. You know, I, I've needed those conversations sometimes to help me figure out another perspective, sometimes to just reinforce what I already believe, you know, like, I, I think, I think having people around you, and I, and I try to do this in my job, certainly I do this on my, on my bench in basketball, of people who are willing to, to disagree constructively, you know, and, or, or to give you other things to think about is really important, and so my parents have been, you know, have, have, have been examples of that, and have been resources for that, and, and it's been nice sometimes to have a group of people around here who aren't connected to Brook School, right, and so sure. it's sometimes nice to be able to just go talk to my parents and not have to think about Brooks and you know and uh you know my my wife is 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 the number one person in this right and and her perspective is great she's a a teacher who's not an administrator she's great at looking at me as I work on my email and saying uh, she'll walk by and be like no one wants to read that you know and you know and I look at I'm like she's right I'm I'm being too wordy right now and that's one of my many faults as a leader is I can talk too much or write too much or whatever else and you know, and she'll just remind me like they don't want to be in the meeting. You know, right. they they'd rather have that time to do this. And she's just been a really good a really good reminder on, on the practical side, but also relationally, right? She she's incredibly supportive. A lot of our lives have revolved around my role at Brooks. We live at Brooks because it's where my job is. My a, my schedule is crazy. We, you know, the the Brooks basketball team has become kind of the thing that our family 
you know, they, they traveled every game. You know, my wife, we were on a walk yesterday and we're both, you know, I've got a Brooks sweatshirt, a Brooks basketball sweatshirt. She's wearing a Brooks basketball t-shirt and a Brooks basketball hat. Like she, that, that, that's a huge part of kind of who we've been. And so she's been a great resource that when it is tough, of someone who just helps me take a deep breath, who helps me to, to, to kind of remind myself and to trust my instincts. Cause I, you know, I think like any leader, you sometimes second guess that kind of stuff. And yeah. I mean, I've gotten to know Candace and she's a special young woman. Um, I think she is someone that grounds you. I think that she's a truth teller, which is kind of where I want to go next. Um, in terms of, she's also been an amazing support of you. And it's, it is pretty cool to see your family. The, the, the Brooks games that I've always gone to, I would always see Candace, the kids, your mom, because dad was on the bench with you too. And it was really a, it was a pretty cool from an outsider standpoint to see a real family aspect there. So in terms of truth tellers, one of the things that I probably sometimes get judged on is that I'm too much of a truth teller. My attitude on that is I don't make apologies for that. I think people that can't be honest with people, it comes back to bite you in the ass. I'll give an example. As a young basketball coach, I would kind of tell a kid where I really saw him, as opposed to saying, oh, just keep working hard, you'll play next year. And then he didn't play next year, and the kid would look at me and basically say, you lied. So, you know, my attitude has always been to be a truth teller. Where do you stand on the, just the term truth teller? I love it. You know, it's one of our fundamental core values on our basketball team is like we're going to be truth tellers. You know, I've got coaches who do that. Mike O'Connor, in particular, who's my yeah. assistant, you know, is is one of the the, the uh, most authentic truth tellers I know. Whether it's me, whether it's our kids, you know, and 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 we frame it as truth telling is love, right? That when you actually care about somebody, sure, right? And and you know, we use simple examples like the spinach in your teeth thing, right? But all of us have that friend who who knows how to tell us there's spinach in our teeth before we go out with the, with the crowd, you know, and, you know, and there's some people who don't tell you there's spinach in your teeth and you go out and embarrass yourself and, and, and they save themselves that. And there are other people who wait to point out that you have spinach in, in your teeth and when you're in front of the crowd and embarrass yeah. you. And there's a middle ground there where, where you say, I care about you. And because I care about you, I want to share this with you, right? right. Because I think by sharing this, I'm going to help you. And, and that's what I care. I care about your growth. I care about your development. And I want, and, and I trust our relationship enough to know that I can do that without you wondering where the, where it comes from. But truth telling is really hard if you don't have that that trust and the relationship. And I think that goes, you know, that, that first question you're asking about relationship. I think part of why I'm so driven by the relationship is that's how you can get to that conversation. And without it, it's really hard to get anyone to believe you or or to to weigh it against somebody who's not, you know. And, and the opposite of it is what, what I call kind of fast food feedback, right? Which is the you know, it's the bag of Doritos of words. It's like, you're doing great. Yeah. You know, it feels awesome in the moment, and it, but it doesn't sustain you. And, you, and, if you. and if it's all you're getting, you're in trouble. And so how do you, how do you build an organization or a team or whatever that has that, 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 that sees truth-telling as love, as like that's how right. we care for each other. And, and there's a way to do it and, a, way to, and a, a time and a place and a way to make sure that you, you, know, that, that you have that relationship to, to be able to do it. But, but if you don't have that, I don't see how the organization can improve or grow or, or the person or whatever else. So, you know, I, I, it's hard in the moment, I think, you know, and, and it doesn't go well with everybody. And sometimes it can, you know, and as a leader, you have to understand that that can happen and that you can't control that. But I think in the long run, it's the only way to, to go as a leader. Yeah, no, very well said. Um, how important is networking and connecting with people in terms of building leadership? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by leaders. And 
you said it. I, I've, yeah. I've spent my I spent a lot of my life watching. You know, I think that's you know if I'm a big believer that I can learn something from everybody. I always you know I kind of remind myself of that and and think about that. And sometimes it's sometimes you learn what you don't want to do, right? But I, there's always an opportunity to watch and learn and grow. And so for me, it's it's how do you get out and put yourself. I, I also want to be authentic, and I know I keep coming back to that word. I'm not a big fan of the like networking to network. Right. I think that feels, I, I don't know, it, it feels cheap. There are people like, when I know when I'm on the other end of it and when someone, and again, I can't say, who, like, I'm not going to use an example here, but there are people who sometimes I think are reaching out or connecting with me because they just want to be connecting with me, right? right? And, I, and that doesn't sit as well. And I'm not, I'm not as likely to kind of lean into that versus somebody who authentically, like who I can learn from and who wants that kind of that trade off in return. And so, you know, a good example, Kristen uh, down at Norwood is someone Kristen who, McDonald, yeah. Yeah, who, who I've gotten to know a little bit this year. We don't know each other well. I don't, we've been act- never actually met each other face to face. It's right. sort of a pandemic thing, but we ended up on a couple calls and I was just, I was blown away listening to her talk about her team and we ended up talking and she, she got to have a season. We didn't. And so she shared her film and I watched some games and we traded some emails and it was just, I learned a ton, you know, I, I, I think she enjoyed the, the um, kind of the back and forth too. And I think we both felt like, you know, I know we both talked about like, hey, at some point we're going to get to go to, to actually see one of each other coach at some right. point, you know, and, and that stuff fires me up. Like that's where I, you know, and I, I'm a believer that I can get that in a lot of different places. And so that's a basketball example, but more often than not, it's not, it's, yeah. you know, I have a really good friend from, from Duke who's a CEO and he, he's very active on Twitter with his leadership and, I've caught him on podcasts, and, and every once in a while I'll try to pick his brain. I just think there's there's so many good examples out there, and, and that that you know. And so, my networking, I guess, is it starts with when I get to actually meet somebody. So I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I do a lot of kind of intentional reach out to network, but when I do meet somebody, I then I work pretty hard to yeah. to keep connected with them and to put myself into position to learn to learn from them. I love your use of the word authentic, which is a word that both of us use a lot. And the authentic network, and for folks that didn't probably catch a little bit what we're talking about, is um, I've run a what's called the Fireside Chat, which is a basketball networking. And during the pandemic, we actually met every week. And it was on Zoom, and a lot of people have never met each other before. But that, to me, was authentic network. And it wasn't just Kristen jumping on the call because she wanted to connect with uh, John McVeigh. It was Kristen wanting to pick John McVeigh's brain on different things and kind of... And it, it, to me, it's just extremely authentic. And it's been one of the silver linings of the, of the pandemic, right? Which I'm huge on silver linings. But that whole connecting, and I agree with you, sometimes the, I don't even like the word network. Yeah. I wish I actually didn't use that in the question. But I think I kind of wanted to get at that sometimes networking isn't real. It isn't authentic. Um, but in a lot of ways, I believe I become a better leader by doing some of the things you said, really connecting people that really I think can help me, or maybe I can help them, and vice versa, and, and that are different, right? Like I think different, that's, like correct. different is the is the thing that that maybe that I that I now learn to look for most, which is sort of you know like who's doing something that that is totally different than what I've ever thought, and exactly. what can I learn from that, and how can I use that to either change what I'm doing or to reinforce like nope, I saw it, I appreciate it, I think you're doing a great job, but it does it wouldn't work for me. And I think either way you're you're learning and growing as a leader when you do that. Absolutely. We, we could talk forever. We only have time Sorry. for a few more questions. Oh, no, not at all. Um, let me ask you a tough one. 
I look at you, and, and John's younger than me, um, so he's not retiring anytime soon. But when you look at it right now, as you continue to evolve, and one of my things is we need to learn every day. If you don't, if you stop learning, in my opinion, you die. You know, you got to keep learning. Like, what would you like to be better as, as a leader, as you go into the next chapter of your life? Yeah, uh, almost everything. You know, I, I, I'm, and I, and I say this a lot, right? Like, I, I think... I try to balance. I, I think I'm a confident person, kind of. I'm sort of a quietly confident person, but I also know that I, I have a lot to do better and a lot to grow from and a lot to, you know. And, and you're right, I'm not close to retiring, you know. But but that question is sort of like, how do you want people to think of you? You know, I I don't know. It'll be interesting. Like my my leadership journey, you know, the, the Brooks basketball thing has been amazing, but. You know, I'm interested in being ahead of a school, and if mm -hmm. I decide to be ahead of a school, that's going to end. You know, and so I think about, you know, how, you know, how, to, what would, what do I want to leave, if, if that happens? And I think it's, you know, I want people to feel like, they, like I cared, you know, like that I worked incredibly hard for them, that I, that I served them, that I listened, you know, and, and so, what's next? I think is, is trying to do more of that, but maybe in different situations, you know. And so it's, it's how do you apply some of these lessons that I've learned at a smaller scale, and, and apply them in different places than I've ever been before, you know, and, or how do I, you know, how do I take, you know, I think the nice thing about as you get older, you, you get a little more wisdom, you get more experience. And how do I now get the information flowing in, in both ways, right? How do I have mentors? And then how do I be a mentor? And who can I serve that way? Who are the people that are young that could use, you know, when I think of all those people that I talked about, like, that's one of my goals. I hope someday someone thinks of me the way I, I mentioned all those people at the beginning of this who, you know, who I think, you know, like I think about Coach Hamill, right? And and how hard that was when he died and, and how often I got a, I've got his, you know, like a, a picture of him on my desk and, and how often I think like, all right, like how, how can I have the role in someone's life that he had in my life or he had in some of my teammates' life, right? And 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 I think I'm at a good point in my career to have it have both of those things going on, you know, like that I can still have a lot. There's a lot of people who have been doing this a lot longer and who I can learn from. And then there's a bunch of this kind of this next generation of leaders who are looking to to, to get in and how can I support them and uh, and empower them and and spread I guess that's what it is it feels like a gift right like I feel like I have been the recipient of this amazing gift from all these people and and how do I pass that on to somebody else I guess that's what what's on my mind right now and and in doing that not in a, like a charity way but but more like in the way I'm describing that actually I think you learn from that you grow from yeah. that it's not you know it's not just sort of a one-way street and I don't know that I I think when I was young I I pictured my mentors sort of just doing it for charity but I think now I'm starting to feel that that's a lot of fun it's it's yeah. fun to work with young coaches I have a, I have a blast with that I have a blast talking to people who are just starting a program Steve Boudreaux who we've mentioned a couple sure. of times is is a kid I've known since he was in elementary school and I watch him taking over a team and you know, and listening to him and, and, and talking, that, that fires me up. And so, you know, I think that's, that's maybe what, what's on my mind for next is how do, I, how do I position myself in the middle of that to, to kind of to, to benefit from all of that? Well, that kind of leads into my last question because, and again, I've said it a few times that I, I really need to emphasize that John is an extremely humble leader. Um, but I follow John on social media, and I've had the pleasure of actually knowing a lot of John's former players. Um, and I see what they look at John, and I'll see the comments they put on social media and how much they respect and thank John. And he has a wonderful former player that I, I love the day I watched work out in the Brooks gym. 
And I love that he was more than just a basketball player, and that's Akena. Um, he's doing some phenomenal work outside of basketball while continuing to be a phenomenal basketball player. You know, what would you say, I know what you probably said to Ikenna a number of years ago, but what would you say to the future Ikenna's uh, in terms of you being a leader to them, and like, what would you say to a young person as I kind of starts his next life? He could probably use a little advice from you on what it likes to be a, a leader in your twenties. What would you say to those young leaders? Yeah, it's. A, I mean, we talk. I kind of. I mean, I, I love it. I kind of do. I mean, he is. He's that close to me. We talk a lot. You know, he is at that stage. He's sure. he's leaving college. He's trying to weigh his decisions. He's probably going to play professionally in Europe, but he's so much more than just a basketball player. He started his own nonprofit in, in Boston and it's incredibly successful and it's around empowering kids. And so I don't know if I can as the best example because I always feel like I'm learning from him. But I but I but I know what you mean, right? Yeah. And and I think that the, the there's less of a I think there's less of a waiting period than ever before. I I think when I was young and maybe even the generations before that there weren't as many opportunities to be a leader right away. Right. And I think in lots of great ways Technology has changed that. Uh, the the opportunities that are available for young kids, the platforms that people have, you know, like, and, and that's, I get excited about that. I think about things like you can, you can, you know, kind of put yourself in a position to get your message out there far earlier than ever before. You don't need necessarily to wait until your name to coach, right? You can start a program, and and I can as a perfect example of that, right? And. You know, he started a nonprofit on his own. He was, yeah. you know, he graduated college in three years and he was looking for kind of the next thing. And he was still playing college basketball and taking grad study and graduate courses, I should say. And, you know, he, and, and all he thought was sort of like, where is there a need? He's an incredible speaker, an incredible, um, he's got a gift with words as a writer. And so that's what, you know, so his, his organization is designed around that. Is he, he gives middle school and high school kids in Boston a platform. It gives them a chance. It gives them skills to help learn about being speakers and then he has contests and, and he puts them in, in positions with mentors who can grow. It's, it's a phenomenal program, but it's a perfect example. I don't know that 20 years ago, like that you could have just started a nonprofit that way. It was harder, you know, and now like it, it's there. So I guess one of my things I'd say to people in 20 is just go, don't wait to be asked. You know, if you see a need, do it, you know, and, and, and there are going to be people who are around to help you and guide you. But, but I think like that, that's, what's exciting to me. You don't have to, you're not bound by anything that's happened before. You can start, you know, look for a need. And I think that's the, when, when people do reach out and they're trying to figure out what's next, that, like, it's sort of like, what whispers to you right now, right? Like, what what is it that you look around and either wish you had when, you know, you, you know those, those people in their 20s, they're still close to, like, you remember, like, I know, I kind of remembers what it's like to be in middle school. He remembers what it's like to be in high school. It's kind of like a foggy memory to me right now. It's not as, I'm not as proximate to that, you know? So if you're going to help young people, what a time to do it, you know? And, and so, I don't know, I get, I, I, I would be fired up to be in my 20s right now. I think there's so much opportunity, there's, you know, and to, to do the work and to, and to make a difference. And, and you know, you know, you, you've worked with so many young people. And sure. I, you know, I love following them online. I like seeing, you know, I, you know and I could go down a list of people and I don't, I apologize if I leave people, but like, you know, I'll read Jimmy Warden's blog, right? Yeah. And, 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 and you get to follow his path. Or Anthony Barry, who's another one of my players who I was texting with yesterday, who's found this passion. I watch him working with kids, right? And I'm just so proud of him. And he's, you know, he's, he's on the kind of on the strength and training and, and mental approach to athletics. Yeah. And, I, and, and all these kids that, are, that I've been lucky enough to work with, right? And, and I have such joy in that and watching them kind of go into the world and make a difference. And, uh, and it just, it, it's, 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 
there's just never been a better time, I think, yeah. to to become a leader than right now. And and so if there's one piece of advice, that's it. You know, is to is to go. I mean, that hits really home to me because similar to our Kenner is my own son, son oh, Michael, yeah. who you know. You know, I, I, it's it's funny. I, and I even as I was driving here, I'm you're I'm gonna say this right. Like there is nobody right now who I follow online more and and think of around words of authenticity on making a difference, right? And you know, and it's a good example, like. Uh, He's, I've connected with his work because of social media, but sure. that's not a social media organization, right? No. Like, I think that's a big, and I, maybe I should have said that before. There's a danger, I think, in thinking like it's all about what you post, right? right. What's, what's powerful about Michael and TMF is the work's being done and the, and like the, the social media just helps translate it and helps people understand what's going on. Exactly. But it's, it's incredible what he's doing, right? And, and you think about that and what he's been able to do and how young he is, right? And, and you know, I remember him running around in the, on the court at Drummond, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and thinking about the difference he's made and, and it's just, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's the best. I'm, I'm glad you said it because yeah. it, it, it's, it's as good a local example. You know, I talk about it with my wife. I talk, like he's, he is walking that walk that we're talking about right, right now. Like him, him and I Ikenna, and they're around the same age. Um, Michael's a little bit older than Ikenna, but you're right. They're, they're really doing it. They're not talking about it. They're putting it in action. And as a father, uh, obviously extremely proud. And, you know, I started this program when I was 26 years old. And, was, you know, everybody knows me as Rick Gorman. But the most satisfying thing right now is I'm known as Michael Gorman's father. <laughs> and there's, there's nothing more special than that because I know your parents – I mean, Mike McVeigh is known as John McVeigh's father now, not just Mike McVeigh. So I appreciate you saying that. A uh, couple glass things. We do a little thing on a one word. So I'm going to throw out a few leaders. And I just want you to kind of, when I throw out this leader's name, and obviously I gave you no prep on this, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It could be a one word. It could be a sentence or whatever. Walt Disney. Uh, imagination. You know, I think that's a good example of something that didn't exist before. You know, and to imagine... The possibility, you know, you know, I, I have. He's somebody who, who created something that had never before existed. He wasn't. He wasn't trying to improve something or, or do his own version. That he did it his own way. Absolutely. Somebody that you and I like that's now announced his retirement. Roy Williams, University of North Carolina. Human. He. I've seen a lot of coaches in practices. He's the most human, high-level Division One basketball coach I've ever seen. I, I sat and watched the practice, and the whole time thought, I wish my son could play for this man. You know, and watching how he treated people, watching how he treated managers, how he how it wasn't just about about the stars of the team. You know, and I think you've seen that even this week, with how he's handled this and how he's supported uh, Hubert as he's as he's taken over. He's a he's, he's such a human leader. It's funny. Some people will sometimes fight me on how good of a coach he is. Uh. And uh, we can have that debate, I guess. But the reality is, I don't know if there's anybody that's had such a relationship. Uh, I, I get choked up just listening to his former players' um, testimonials on Twitter this week. You know, just amazing. Um, Steve Jobs. Yeah, uh, in, uh, I think about him in response to failure, you know, and how, you know, he's, you know, because what Apple has become, people think about kind of his role in that, but he was fired from Apple. Yeah. He gives an incredible speech that, that I listened to with my oratory class where he talks about kind of how freeing that was for him. It makes me think a little bit about coaching this year when you know coaches this year weren't uh, weighed down by having to make tournaments or win the tournament or anything. And, and he describes when he was fired as the most freeing time. It's when he, it's when he invented Pixar. It's when he sort of reimagined himself. It's when he found his wife. And, and 
his response to that, you know, he'd been successful, he was sort of publicly embarrassed and feeling bad, and his response to that was to create more and to jump back in and to, you know, I, I admire the heck out of that. And his, the, the phrase that I always think of with him is that you can't connect the dots looking forward. You know, I think about that with my life all the time, right? That you can't, so many times, and kids do this a lot, they wanna, they wanna try to figure out what's next and what's gonna happen after that. And sometimes you have to have faith in, in like the decisions you make that it's gonna work out. I, I, like, that was the, my thing with when I left engineering. It's like, I didn't have a great plan, but as I look back now, it was the most important thing I ever did. Sure. And, but you can't know that until later. And so you have to have faith in the, in the fact that the dots will connect as long as you sort of stay authentic to yourself and, you know, and, and what you believe. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, uh, icon and, uh, you know, walked the walk and talked the talk and uh, it was just, I think, um, the, the, right at the very top of, of leadership in my mind around, uh, you know, her own personal example when you watch, like, how she like, how she lived her life in every single aspect, a, a hero of mine. Absolutely. Last one, somebody that's a mentor to you um, and was a mentor to me, and I'm older than you, but he was a mentor to me. Uh, we miss him every single day. Bert Hamill. Uh, yeah, that was a tough one. To, uh, he just he he was uh, he was so important in my growth and development, and uh, and he just cared. He cared so much um, about about kids, uh, you know, and uh, his his passion and and the way that he cared about his players, maybe more the way he cared about the kids at the club. Uh, and, and what that meant, the way he cared about his family. You know, like, I think uh, that, like, he, he was someone who, who gave his whole heart to the things that, that he was involved in. He wasn't, like, he was not looking, like, he was, he was very focused, right? He didn't, he wasn't looking, he didn't have a ton of, of, uh, of like, I, we used to joke, he didn't have a ton of interest. Like, he loved basketball. That's what he wanted to do. Right. It wasn't, like, people would say, take a break. He wasn't all that interested in that. But, but he was such a, a, a great father. He was such a great husband. And like what what Jill and the kids meant to him it was. I remember like as I even as a player watching that and, and, and just learning. And then his our relationship was was something that that will always stay with me. Absolutely, and we miss him every day. John, I want to thank you coming on to be our first uh, in the Savage Leadership Series. This was phenomenal. I think people are going to get an awful lot out of this. A little bit of your story, a little bit of some of your recommendations. Uh, learn from a little bit of how you grew and how, and how you continue to grow. But uh, if people don't know John McVeigh, once we get to a real open world again, go over and see him at, at Brooks School. He's doing a phenomenal job. And if you like basketball, go check out the Brooks basketball team. They are fun to watch and, uh, you know, obviously a good team, but wonderful leadership from John on that. So I, John, I, just, I, I, just, yeah, I just want to say thanks. I, I love coming in. You know what you mean to me, right, and, and, uh, and what you've meant to me. And, and there's a reason I mentioned you at the beginning of this is in sort of your your mentorship and, and growing up right and, and how important that was and you know the job was important but it was watching you and learning from me like I said has it, been such a big part of this so I'm, I'm just grateful for that and I'm I'm grateful for this series I'm, I can't wait to listen to some of the other speakers and uh, and to learn and and, uh, and just uh, I just appreciate being here so thank well, you well I appreciate that John and yes leading in next week we will have state representative Christina Minacucci she will be number two and I just found out she used to go to school with John McVeigh in elementary school. So we'll probably touch on that a little bit. But Christina is doing a phenomenal job in her role as a state rep. 
Um, she is a close friend of the youth center. She's been working with me side by side. We put on the vaccination clinic here for our older residents in town and uh, gonna touch on her leadership styles and some of the things. So once again, thank you, John. And as we finish every podcast, we always say too much passion is never enough passion.